0: This is Unsung, a podcast for the yet-to-be-discovered the ones working towards goals in silence, the ones that deserve a platform. Welcome to the Unsung Podcast with Connor Eben. Today's guest is someone that I've been fortunate enough to grow close with over the past 12 to 16 months and now actually own a business with by the name of Stephen Ullman. You'll notice him on LinkedIn more than other places for having the tagline fifty companies by twenty fifty. Him and I met through LinkedIn about twelve to fourteen months ago and truly just hit it off from the very beginning. He provides a tremendous amount of sincerity and thoughtfulness with how he goes about what he does, both as a person and a professional, and truly blends those worlds better than anyone that I've been able to meet. And it's truly someone that I look up to and I think there's so much to be learned from this conversation, and I hope you guys genuinely get true value out of this. And feel free to reach out to him through LinkedIn. It's exactly how him and I started this relationship, and it's been more than I could have ever asked out of a single message through LinkedIn. So feel free to hit him up through Instagram or LinkedIn at Stephen Ullman and have the same kind of wonderful conversations that we had today and have had for For months now. Unsunk Podcast. Stephen, I appreciate you being on the podcast. I think the most important part of the podcast and getting to know the guests on it, what's your story in terms of how you ended up being Stephen of today, right? I mean, moments, times, people that kind of impacted a lot of who you are today and ending on kind of what you're working on today. That's great. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. And so I'll kind of start with. The most broad-based of question is, tell us who Stephen Ullman is. Well, I I grew up
1: in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and um, pretty important to note, my dad is a pastor, and my mom was a teacher. So everybody knew who I was, the places that I spent the most time at, which was pretty formative and kind of had an influence, I think, in good and bad ways. And, you know, one of the things that kind of resulted from my upbringing was, especially being around my dad, like he was a pastor, but he was also kind of unique in that he also had a for profit business and a nonprofit organization. And so he had three different things going on at all times. And he was also still very present with our family. And so, you know, I just saw this high capacity, high efficiency sort of guy growing up. And that's still true to this day. He's in his 60s and he's still doing all three of those things. Maybe at differing levels, but sure. specific to teacher, pastor, you know, kind of some performance based stuff, you know, in me that I've worked through over the course of time and not always feeling like I have to just be the most awesome. And I think that's been a journey as an entrepreneur of really not totally time identity to entrepreneurship. I think that's super easy to do. And so a lot of people, a lot of my friends have gotten very depressed because they've tied so much who they are to whether their startup raised three million bucks or not. And so that's been a really interesting path as well, kind of at a high level of really loving being an entrepreneur, but not making it ultimate because you can get in like a really bad place super fast if things aren't going yeah. well. I think, I guess, maybe I'm still discovering and and walking through. Maybe that'll always be something that I wrestle with, but definitely have no intentions of leaving behind the entrepreneurial life.
0: Sure. There's a lot to dig in there. I'll go back to your father being a pastor while running a for-profit, non-profit business. And I think a lot of what I've talked to people about here is how parents have normalized what it was to be a little bit of an entrepreneur, either on Mm -hmm. the side or full time. And so can you think back to any conversations that maybe made it a little bit more acceptable? Because I mean, you know, my story, my mother was an entrepreneur for 15 years and active in my life. And you would have never known she was an entrepreneur if kind of society hadn't changed the definition of it today, where you've got to work a million hours a week, otherwise you're a failure. And so that really normalized it for me. And so Mm -hmm. how is that what did you kind of take from that that maybe allowed you to approach entrepreneurship slightly differently than someone else who may not have grown up in a household like that?
1: I mean, the biggest deal, which I hope to do very soon because I have two young kids is that he included me and that was really special. And so, you know, I have a very specific memory when I was about nine years old, 10 years old, where there was a very important meeting happening. And I happened to be at the office with him that day, summertime. And There was a pretty tense conversation happening and I actually chimed in, which I had, (laughs) I had no place, you know, at the table and I really shouldn't have done that. But they both looked at me and they both said, well, that was really good input. (laughs) Um, And I won't get into what it was, but I felt included and I felt like I got to learn things that maybe some of my friends didn't. And I won't say it was like luxurious, but I definitely got to travel some as well with some of the things that he did. And so we weren't staying you know, in the penthouse anywhere, but I did get to be exposed to different cultures, Canada, Africa, Australia, South America as well. And so that kind of made it more interesting to me. And I also, again, blending that together with the fact that he was very present and it wasn't like I have this absent father because he does business stuff, right. you know, what made it really interesting. And, you know, we can get into this later, but being around that it was very influential in kind of what i'm doing now and how I yeah. position myself
0: the people I've interviewed or talked to thus far, and ultimately some that I know just socially I mean the ones that talk about entrepreneurship much differently are the ones that grew up with it in some capacity and it's, they just don't see as much risk in it as other people because they grew up with it normalized I mean I started yeah. to hear about it when I was eleven when my mom mm-hmm. would have gone out on her own, and ever since then it's almost like I had a dad who worked in A normal everyday job who works for the government, a mom who worked for herself. And okay, I saw that my mom made more money and my dad just worked hard and got like the benefits and made it much more of like a team. Yeah. And so that is interesting that you've taken a lot from that and got the ability to sit in on things. And I could say the same. I mean, my mom's company's been approached once or twice to get purchased and like to have insight into how that process works has really probably helped me. Fall in love with the M&A space, as you all know, and we'll probably get into a little bit later. One other thing I think this is really interesting for this type of podcast. You kind of said not building your self-esteem or your value around being an entrepreneur. And you said the word not always being awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could dig into that, maybe slightly around why do you, because I do think that's probably very different than most people think about entrepreneurship is like, it's got to be your whole life, otherwise you'll fail. How did you come to, to know that about yourself? But then secondly, how do you make sure you implement that so that you can be present with two young kids? Great question. So I think it's really important
1: for people to be self-aware. That's you know one of the things that I preach a lot that I think spending time regularly to know yourself. Is really important, and it's easy to just go along in life and not actually really know who you are and like why you do certain things. And it's super helpful as a business owner to really, really know yourself and to know your common ditches. And so, for me, my biggest ditch is pride for whatever reason. And some of that probably is because of kind of how I grew up. And like I said earlier, spotlight's always on. And so I know that's my ditch. And as I really have progressed through entrepreneurship, it's easy to feel cool. It's easy for someone to say, Oh, that sounds so awesome. And man, it must be so nice to X, Y, Z, you know, whatever that is. And to kind of feed yourself and feed your ego and be like, you know what? I am awesome. I am (laughs) cool. And it's fine to uh, be grateful for the life you have. But I've also found that if you're cool or if life is awesome is dictated by how well a business is going or your uh, people's perception of you, you're going to get disappointed and depressed really fast, yeah. and so it's a it's a guard against that. Knowing that if that's what I attach all that to, that it will eventually ruin me. <laughs> and I've right. I've seen that not with my parents, but I've seen that with some other friends, just getting really hard places because their whole identity was attached to business, and that will end up leading you to a kind of a dark place at some point, typically. So, yeah. and then to speak to the family piece, a lot of it has to do with time blocking. Okay. Um, so I pretty much hang it up at 4:30 every day. From 4:30 to 7:30, a lot of times I put my phone in a drawer when I'm at home, really trying to be present with my family. And then I will work a little bit at nights, maybe 2 out of 7 days a week, something like that. You know, if it's a really hard week, maybe 3, something like that. But it's more so about speed. So I know if maybe I'm not working as much as the next person, maybe I won't be reach a level of success as fast as someone else, but what is success? Because part, of, a big part of success for me is having a good relationship with my wife and children. It all merges together, and so if I'm a little slower in terms of what I'm accomplishing in business, but I have a healthy family, well, I feel like I'm winning.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that, because I just started writing a Medium post this morning called How to Get Rich, and it's basically changing your mindset from trying to do it fast to trying to do it slow. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do think that allows you to be a present father when your kids are young. And it's very similar to how I think about everything that I believe in is like, okay, why do I do this? Why do I play this? What I call sport ultimately, because I want to provide a good life for my family and kids to where we've got everything that we need. And we probably have some small luxuries on the side, but if that's really my goal, then why am I trying to build the next Uber? Right. I mean, it's kind of going against my own goal.
1: To be clear, I have friends that, like, their goal is to be, like, I have one buddy that says, and he's one of the smartest people I know, I want to be CEO of a Fortune 100 company. That's my goal. Yeah. And I don't think that's inherently wrong. No. um, But that will have an effect on certain things, right? Or if someone says, my goal is to take a company public someday. Okay. Awesome. You could do that slowly. If you try to be really aggressive, you're probably going to sacrifice some things along the way. Sure that are notable. So you're right. You really have to know your priorities and what you're really after. I don't ever hope to be CEO of a Fortune 100 company. And I really don't ever care to take a company public. And more so kind of what you talked about, a family centric entrepreneurial approach is what I'm taking.
0: Yeah, I think it does come back to that self-awareness. And whenever I talk to people outside of the podcast, and I, I tend to try and ask them what their goals are if they tend to line up with everything that the world says, I tend to kind of challenge them on it. Not because I am trying to say like, oh, you shouldn't try and be X, but it's like, okay, I want you to want that for you. Not because LinkedIn tells you that you should want Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, that's really good. To me, I really do think they call it the LinkedIn porn and hustle porn. It's like, okay, if you don't Mm -hmm. want to work 100 hours a week, you know what? Like I said before, in a lot of different contexts, My mom worked probably 40 to 50 hours a week, and she was a perfectly successful entrepreneur who took days off and gave me a life that I couldn't be more blessed to have while still being probably the best mother I could ever dream of. Just because the definition of the word has changed doesn't mean what it means has changed in terms of like to an individual person. And so I need to ask, has that changed since you've had kids? And was it different before you had kids and kind of what mattered to you and how you define success? I think it's changed a little bit, but actually okay. just specifically in my
1: story is that I had led sales at a healthcare software company that got acquired and I was there for about four and a half years and I actually let them know that I was going to go through a very long transition process. I, we created about a six month plan And, uh, that's when I found out we were pregnant with our first child. So I found out we were pregnant and I went to them two weeks later and said, Hey, I'm going to leave. Let's hire someone to replace me. I'll train them up and get them, you know, going really effectively. And there were a couple other financial targets that I wanted to help them hit before I left and we did. And then I left, went out on my own. And that was to be, to really, for for me, that's what it took to really prefer my family. And I also knew that I wanted to go out on my own and and build my own companies. And so that was all very tied together for me.
0: I will say I'm slightly surprised by that because most people kind of say everything changed once you have kids. But it sounds like for you, and maybe that's slightly your upbringing and having very present parents that showed you that's what you wanted. But it is interesting to hear that that didn't really change much. Now, it might have solidified it in some capacity for you, but it didn't change a whole lot for you. and so. I'll ask something on a slightly different topic because I think someone who does stuff on their own and or builds businesses on his own and has a family and kids and has chosen to clock out at 430 unless it's needed is what have kind of been some moments that have helped define yourself as a parent or a father or an entrepreneur or a husband, books, quotes, people, your own individual failures or successes that have really helped you define who it is that you want to be in very real life circumstances. Yeah, that's a lot of different answers I could give to that.
1: (laughs) I would say categorically, both sides of my family have divorce riddled throughout them, which may be kind of a surprising thing for me to bring up. But I've just for a long time known that I would probably kind of go this route and maybe not go as hard and fast and not try to build the biggest thing ever Sure. Because I just have seen people get out of whack on the time allocation (laughs) towards stuff towards their marriage and towards their kids and all that. So that for me has been very defining for years, you know, for 15 years, probably maybe longer. And then with my, you know, I got married seven years ago and that was very true on her side of the family as well. And so it's just been kind of a priority from day one since I've been engaged thinking about that in terms of if I ended up going this kind of more entrepreneurial life and really my career in general, very focused on home first because of some experiences and people that I've been around. And then as it relates to quotes and books and things like that, you know, certain moments, I would more so think about a couple of conversations with people that I really respected. Yeah. A couple of really heavy moments in my life where like a mentor or something like that has said, you know, although I'm your mentor, it's kind of a do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) And, you know, really imploring me to not become obsessive over business and that they, they had some pretty significant regrets along those lines. And so just listening to people that have been there before you, like dad has always said that to me, right? Like, Get people that are a lot smarter, that are ahead of you 10, 20 years, and listen to them. And the thing that I've heard a lot is just some regret at times on just being over-obsessed with finance and personal finance yeah. and business success, but at the same time, wanting to be excellent, Sure. you know? Um. So just, yeah, a couple really big conversations al- along those lines that I can look back to that were really impactful for me. And then also I have these conversations that are awkward to have with my friends that maybe haven't made the leap that want to, where there's kind of this opposite regret, right? So it's this, man, I wish I would have done that, or I wish I could take that risk. And they feel like they can't. And so I kind of feel like I'm in this sweet spot and I feel very comfortable right now in my own skin of, I've taken this entrepreneurial leap and I'm loving it, but I also feel pretty balanced and I feel like my priorities are in a pretty good spot. So definitely hasn't been easy to get there. And I'm just trying to stay in that little pocket.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, it goes back to the self-aware comment around. It's just like Mm -hmm. you're kind of finding your sweet spot for how you operate. And so how are you auditing yourself at times, maybe if it's ever needed, to make sure Mm -hmm. that your priorities are staying straight in your actions? And then what are the small things or even big things you're doing to make sure that you're not obsessing over things that, may either one, not be positive or two, affecting other areas of your life that you're not willing to compromise on?
1: Yeah, I'm grateful to have a very easy answer to that question. I think a lot of people don't. There's a lot of mastermind groups. I think mastermind groups can be great. I think a lot of them are absolutely terrible uh, (laughs) for different reasons whether they're predatory and they charge like crazy amounts of money or it's just a bunch of people kind of rah-rah, we're awesome together. And then some are really meaningful. And and there's other groups like YPO and all sorts of stuff like that. I have a group of guys that I get to get, I actually was with them this morning at 6.15. So I get together with some guys every couple weeks on Friday mornings and we hold each other accountable across a lot of different facets of our life. And so that's kind of my answer. You know, I've got four other guys that are just asking me really hard questions that annoy me at times. (laughs) Um, but they know my ditches, they know my tendencies and they know what's going on in my business life and my marriage, family, all that sort of stuff. And they're some of my really close friends. And so that's kind of my answer to that is that I get asked pretty hard questions every few weeks uh, from some guys that like know me really well. Yeah. That's been super helpful.
0: No, that, I mean, that absolutely sounds like it. I think a lot of people rely on other people for fast singular facets of their life, but maybe not Mm -hmm. generally. So it's easy for someone to kind of fall in the trap of like, okay, you just need to work harder. Well, that person may not understand what's going on at home with kids or wife or family.
1: Yeah, And it's so connected. You're right. It is really nice that we kind of talk along those different planes and it's not just because that's really the issue with a lot of mastermind groups is you're just business all the time And so I think it lends itself to being your number one priority, right? It's almost kind of a dangerous game to play and or it can be. So you
0: correctly observe that. (laughs) So maybe a little bit of a thought-provoking question that I may have asked you throughout our conversations over the past year or so, but I'll ask you here because I think it's one that really challenges people mentally to think outside the box, and it's what's something that you believe in or stand for that maybe is quite different than, let's call it, 90% of the people that you talk to, whether that's in the entrepreneurial community, personally, family, friends, whoever it may be, that you tend to think differently on based on your context or ideals or really Mm -hmm. anything along those lines that's just challenging the status quo regularly? Sure. Yeah, I'll give you two, and they're kind of
1: connected. They may, may almost seem like they contradict one another, but I don't think they do. One is I tell people, and it makes them uncomfortable at times, that I believe that every single person is a company. So, and I have a pretty strong view on this. I think that like Kathy, that's 37, works at an insurance company, middle management. I think Kathy's a company. She sells her time to an insurance company, and that company pays her money, and she gets some benefits out of it. But ultimately, I think that she should view herself as an entity. And I think that that would help people more accurately value their time and maybe prioritize things differently. And it's the same thing for an entrepreneur, right? You know, 25-year-old David that runs his, you know, paid media marketing company. Cool. Yeah. He's a company too. And he has a company. But I think if, if everyone viewed themselves individually as an entity, as it relates to business, I think that it would serve them really well. Huh. And a lot of people don't or won't. And I think um, especially people that are working in a traditional W-2 environment yeah. don't think that makes sense. But that's actually the group of people that I wish did the most. Yeah. And that's kind of how I viewed myself when I was still, you know, working for that software company and it really helped. Um, and then the other thing I'd say, which is not really contradictory, but you have this kind of individual view of yourself, like I am an entity. But then for me in entrepreneurship, very rarely do I have any interest now, if ever, on building a company on my own. I might explore a concept. I mean, even like cap table, right? Like, yeah. I mean, equity. Like, I really don't have interest in owning 100% equity other than my holding company. But sure. like, in owning 100% of anything, because I've just seen that I work and like flourish much more when I have one or more people in my corner. and We're doing that together. And there is something to be said for solopreneurs and sure. solopreneurship. Um, I'm not saying that that's bad or wrong or you're not going to be as productive as you could be. Who knows? But for me, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on having a partner in, or multiple partners in everything that I do. And I think that in general, people are greedy. People care about themselves most. And part of the whole view of that is that I really love bringing other people along with me. Yeah. And that really gets me excited. And I think for a lot of people, their mindset is how much equity can I possibly retain and for me, I mean, yeah, of course, if it's something successful, especially you're like hoping you have a bunch of equity, great. But it's the classic owning fifty percent of something that's super successful versus a hundred percent of a dud. It's basically just that principle extrapolated.
0: That was something that I did early on when I kind of started was to try and do some things on my own, and I certainly started to understand that I tend to not be very greedy. and My mom always says I undervalue myself, but. I've got to consider the source on that one too. But I think there is just something to be said for that because it holds you accountable at times where you may not maybe be at your best or you have the moment to rely on a partner to help you with that when maybe you need to be present with kids or personal life just in general. So I will say to me that's something that you've brought up to me before in early conversations that I've probably started to believe in a little bit more over time. And I think ultimately it's just more fun to do it with someone else, right?
1: Yeah. I think so. And again, may not be true for all people, but I'm a pretty big advocate for them.
0: I mean, it's everyone talks about how lonely it is, but if you're willing to give up a little bit of equity, um, you can make that part of entrepreneurship much easier. So I've got two final questions for you here that may be a a bit easier um, and maybe not as deep, but I, Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of important. And what was the last thing that you asked for help on? And it can be anything. It can be this morning when you met with kind of the guys in, let's call it your inner Mm -hmm. circle. Or it could be something with work that happened yesterday afternoon. Like, what's kind of the last thing that you asked for help on?
1: I got connected to, so I've been exploring a potential new business uh, with a couple other people. It's kind of like a niche lending business. Hmm. And... I was connected through a friend that also is an entrepreneur that owns a great uh, commercial roofing company here in Texas, and he connected me to the perfect person. You know, you need these answers, sure. and you get connected, and you start asking questions. Could you help me understand X, you know, or what, yeah. what does Y really mean? And he just had every answer. and was like, oh, this is so nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was earlier this week, and um, I really enjoyed getting to know my new friend, Mark. Who uh,
0: who was super helpful. I think sometimes the world just has a place of or has the right to sometimes put the perfect person in your lap, and it tends to do it pretty regularly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was great.
0: What are you currently obsessing over? What's the new thing that you're really digging into and really interested in? And it can be industry-specific product or company or anything in between. Yeah,
1: I the thing that I've been watching a lot is and, and we can kind of talk about internet exits if you want to kind of baked into all this. But I've been what I've been watching a lot of recently is in the SaaS space, probably the thing I've been spending my most time on, looking at this whole ecosystem of awareness, education, and funding. It's kind hmm. of the three big buckets in software. You probably heard the saying like software is eating the world or software's eaten the world already. Right. I think we are just getting started. I just oh I just saw a really, really fascinating statistic like two days ago. I want to say that it was only 16% of B2B companies spend money on enterprise SaaS. Cool. Yeah, it was very small. It was something like that that was yeah. shocking. And so I think we're just getting started. And so software, to me, we're still in the early days in a lot of ways. And so the awareness for new technologies. What are the different ways that a new startup are getting awareness and exposure to their market? Education for those startups, how are they learning? Because a lot of people don't have all the answers early on. And so that's another big piece of the puzzle for startups is continued education in a sense. Like you think about plumbers, they have to do continued education. I don't really know if they need to. I feel like that's kind of, ridiculous, but like plumbers <laughs> have to go get several hours of continuing education credits every year. It's like, isn't it like the same pipes? Like, I don't know. Um, you think? But with startups and founders, there's a lot of different ways that they can educate themselves. And so that's, I've been thinking and pondering a lot about that as it relates to like building more of like a systematic way to do that. And then thirdly is funding. And we all know about seed funding and sure. equity investments in VC and you know, all that. But there's also this huge trend of non-dilutive funding as well in the form of, you know, recurring lending against recurring revenue and kind of more like traditional factoring happening, but in the SaaS world. And so, yeah, that whole ecosystem and and then just within that whole subset, you know, seeing companies change hands and being bought and sold. And it's just a a really fascinating time in in the SaaS space.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I will say, talk to people that say, software's got to be coming close to the end, right? But statistic like that, and you kind of go, okay, we might only be in the second ending of this thing so far.
1: Yeah. So that's why I don't mind spending a lot of time learning and planning and thinking of different concepts, because I just think that there's so much meat on the bone.
0: Sure. Well, Steven, I, uh, I, I seriously appreciate the time. And I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up to maybe give some people some ideas on the market of B2B SaaS and education in general and funding and trying to just push the boundaries of creativity and markets that may not have it just yet. And I appreciate you being on and I hope to do it again here in the next six or 12 months and see if you've started to move into those categories in some capacity. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Unsung Podcast.